Please be seated. Our Bible reading this morning comes from Luke 22, verses 39 to 46. And in your Bibles, the blue one's quite close to you, hopefully. Um, It's on page 1058. That's Luke 22, verses 39 to 46. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. How are we doing on one hour's less sleep? It's a bit of a struggle for me. No, it's not. It's great to be here, and uh, let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to each one of us through this passage this morning, through the example of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning, we're thinking about Jesus' obedience. And for those who've been with us for the last three months, we've been looking at the book of Jonah, the prophet Jonah and his story. And now we're turning towards Jesus and focusing on him as we look to our Easter story. And we've seen that there's been lots of connections between the story of Jesus and the story of Jonah. Jonah runs away from God's mission to him to go to the city of Nineveh. Jesus walks towards the city of Jerusalem to complete his mission. Jonah is saved by the whale and spends three days in the belly of the whale. Jesus is the one who saves and he spends three days in the tomb. And then Jonah's book, as we saw last week, ends with Jonah still questioning God still angry with God, not because God is a God of judgment, but because God is a God of mercy. And how opposite is that to Jesus, who ends his life bringing God's mercy and forgiveness to all. Thank goodness for us that he does. So today we're focusing on Jesus' obedience and We're going to be thinking uh, how that is something that none of us can ever match. But it's still an example that we can try and follow. And I wonder, have you ever wondered when Jesus first realized that he was going to have to die to take the sins of the world? He couldn't have known that as a baby. His sort of brain wasn't working enough for him to realize it then. 
Perhaps as a small boy, as he was in the synagogue reading the scrolls, the scrolls that were the word of God that was to be so much a part of him. Perhaps he was struggling to understand who this suffering servant that Isaiah speaks about, who he was. And perhaps he recognized there was something that this was about him and calling him into something. In his teenage years, that would have been a heavy burden to bear. And in his 20s, Jesus goes on studying and praying, putting in place all of the rhythms that would serve him later in life. While other young men were finding wives and settling down, Jesus spends time with his father. But the point at which I think Jesus realizes that he has to die for the sins of the world is when he's in the desert, after once he's baptized... The Holy Spirit leads him out into the desert. And in the desert, he spends these 40 days. And I think that's when he finally realizes that this is his mission. This is what he has to do. Because at the end of those 40 days, the devil comes and tempts him, doesn't he? And the devil says, you don't have to follow that path. There's an alternative. You can have all the power and the security and the fame that you want. You just have to bow down to me. For Jesus to understand this alternative, he must have understood the path that he was going to take, the path that led to the cross. Jesus sees that this is his route. And that fully human part of him must have longed to avoid this agonizing death that he faced. And yet, he goes, he leaves the desert and begins his ministry and follows the way that leads to the cross. In the Gospels, the point at which Jesus speaks of his death uh, alters in in each one. In Mark's Gospel, it comes at the very center of the Gospel. There's a hinge. The first part of Mark's Gospel speaks of all the signs of Jesus and his authority, his identity. The second half speaks of his death and resurrection. And between chapters 8 and 10, Three times Jesus tells the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the elders. He must die and rise again. Three times he says it. In Luke, Jesus just says it once. Uh, And again, it's uh, in the middle uh, of Luke's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, it's a bit further on in the gospel. And the first time that Jesus speaks of his death in Matthew's gospel... There's this passage. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days And three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus, Jesus saying these words about himself, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then Jesus goes on, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus sees his own mission as a reflection of the mission of Jonah. 
And as we think about this Jonah versus Jesus comparison, we can see that we've all got choices to make. Are we going to follow Jesus? Are we going to follow his path? Or are we going to go the way of Jonah and disregard what God calls us to do? Run away in the opposite direction. The passage that Helen read to us tells us of Jesus' obedience. On the night before he dies, Jesus goes out as usual to the Mount of Olives. That was the place where he and his disciples would stay when they came to the great festivals in Jerusalem because the city of Jerusalem would be crowded out by all the people who would have gathered from across the Mediterranean region. They'd all come to the festival. This is how Jerusalem made its money, through all these people who flooded in to celebrate these festivals. And so all of the accommodation was sought after and expensive. And Jesus and his disciples, they didn't stay in the best hotels. They stayed in the rocks and caves on the Sermon on the Mount because they had no money. They had no uh, expense uh, account, uh, no card to, to pay anything. They just had uh, God looking after them. And they'd go and leave the city each night when they were in Jerusalem, walk this path. And the path is a real path. Let's remember that this isn't a made-up story. This is a real story that happened in history. And just four weeks ago, uh, some of us were out in Jerusalem, and we followed this path. Uh, we followed it in the opposite direction. So this is the footpath that goes across the Kidron Valley in between Jerusalem and over towards the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives is the hill that you can see in the distance, and there's a big church, which is the Church of All Nations, which is built just at the side of the Garden of Gethsemane. This was where Jesus walked on that night all those years ago. In that garden, there are still trees that are said to be old enough to have been there when Jesus... Oops, that one's slipped over Jesus. Uh, been there when Jesus um, was there. And you can see how broad the trunks are. One wonders all of the things that these trees have seen. The garden is now beside a busy main road that runs along the east side of Jerusalem. These trees that saw Jesus kneel and pray still watch the world rush by today. Jesus goes to this garden, and when he reaches the garden, he, as he usually would have done, goes to pray. But on this night, he says to his disciples, he warns the disciples not to give in to temptation. And he goes on a short distance into the trees, close enough to call out to them in need, but far enough to be alone with his father. And these last days, this last week that they've spent together in Jerusalem, have been full of emotion and turmoil. Jesus comes in, remember, on Palm Sunday on the donkey and all the crowds welcome him he goes to the temple and he turfs out the money changers and then he has all the debates in the uh, colonnades and the temple uh, courts he debates with the scribes and the pharisees they send herodians and sadducees to try and trip jesus up but jesus beats them he defeats them in all of the debates 
And the only sign, remember these are the people who ask him for a sign, the only sign that he gives during this week is to curse the fig tree that stands for the temple of Jerusalem. He curses it because it bears no fruit. That's the temple bearing no fruit and it withers and dies. And just 40 years after Jesus, this temple would be destroyed. It would die and never be replaced. Jesus has finished this exhausting program and the disciples quite reasonably fall asleep. But Jesus goes to pray and he prays this prayer. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. This is a time of testing. A time that Jesus would need to pass through. And he can do it only because he focuses on his Father and his Father's will. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. What is this cup that Jesus is talking about? It's the cup of wrath that was spoken of in the Old Testament. A specific cup of judgment. A specific cup that is spoken of in Psalm 75 verse 8. It's a psalm that speaks of God's judgment. And as God judges the earth, the psalm says, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. This cup contains all of God's wrath at the sins of the world. All of the sin that Jesus would carry all of those hours on the cross. I remember there was a lovely lady in a church that we were part of. But she struggled with the fact that God allowed suffering in the world. And she struggled mainly because she'd watched her own mother battle with cancer for years and years until she was finally defeated. She'd seen her mother suffer all through those years. And we went on a retreat, and the retreat was led by a lovely bishop, a retired bishop. And she said this to him. She said, look, why should I trust God about suffering when he couldn't stop my mother suffering Why should I trust God? Jesus was only on the cross for three hours. My mother suffered for three years. And the bishop was really gentle and kind. And he explained to her how Jesus, when he was on those cross for those three hours, it wasn't just suffering that we might know. It was suffering, the compounded suffering of all of the people of all of history all the suffering that had ever occurred and ever will occur. It was all the sins of the world, all of the sins that had been committed and would be committed. Everything that happened, including the Holocaust and the missiles that hit the innocents in Mariupol, all of that sin was laid upon Jesus as he hung on the cross. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus has spoken to James and John when they want to be a big part in his kingdom. And Jesus says to them, can you drink from the cup I drink from? It's a warning about this cup of wrath. In the book of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah that Jesus knew so well, the scroll that Jesus picks up in 
Nazareth and says, this is now fulfilled in your hearing. In the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah says this, thus says the Lord, thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. God will take his wrath away from his people. It will be delivered to another recipient. They will be spared the judgment that they deserved, for someone else will take the punishment for them. God's wrath has to be poured out because all of the sin and the evil cannot be in the same presence as God's holiness and goodness. God pours his wrath out. All of the sin and evil undiluted is poured into this cup, poured out so that its damage can be destroyed. This is what Jesus' obedience means for us, that he took all of this upon himself. He suffered in our place, made the sacrifice once for all. Do we appreciate all that Jesus endured as we get ready to celebrate Easter? We need to have this in our minds. Can we accept that he has taken all of our sin? So easy to hold on to the things that we're ashamed of, to hold on to those things that separate us from God. We need to lay them at the cross because we are forgiven. He has taken all of our sins. Will we trust and believe that we are forgiven, that we are his children, that we are his people? In another garden, a first Adam would be tempted and he would be offered something, offered an easy way out, offered something that he didn't deserve. And that Adam would disobey God. Now, through obedience in this garden, a new path towards restoration is created. And St. Paul sees what happened there in that garden and sees what happens here in this garden. In Romans chapter 5, St. Paul says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation of all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as the disobedience of one man made many sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. This is what Jesus did for us. Adam's weakness and rebellion broke our relationship with God. Jesus comes to put that right, to bring us back to God. Jesus is obedient to the very end so that we might walk again in God's presence. Jesus doesn't run away. He doesn't avoid this calling, this mission. Jesus doesn't resist God's grace. He brings his mercy and his forgiveness into the world. Jesus dies for us. He dies in our place because God loves us, because God longs for his children to know him once more. Because God's love and power is victorious over the evil and the hatred of this world. 
Because in the end, life is stronger than death and good is greater than evil. Jesus wins this victory. This is the good news of Easter. This is why we celebrate at this time of year. This is why we should be excited for these next two weeks and what they're going to bring. Who can we tell of what Jesus has done for us? Who can we share this message with? Who can we pass on this life-giving message that Jesus died so that we might live? This is the good news that we need to share this Easter. This is the good news of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and let me pray for us as we accept this good news for each one of us. Lord, we thank you that there's nothing that we can do that will make us right with you. We thank you that all that you have done has made us righteous, has brought us peace, has restored us in your image. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the gift that you have given us, the gift of grace that makes us your people once more. Fill us afresh, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with that light and life and love that only comes from you. And help us to reflect your light and life and love into this world. That people might see you and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Now and forever. Amen. Let's sing our final song of worship.